0: Amen. Have a seat for a moment and let's just be quiet with, uh, with one another and with the Lord. We've been singing about the goodness of God. Has he been good to you? Take a moment and just think, think about three things in which you have seen the goodness of God across your lifetime. It may have been this week. It may have been in childhood. Just think for a moment of how God has shown his goodness to you. Now, let's go to him in prayer and thank him. Thank the Lord for the things you've just thought of. Father, you are good, always faithful, unchanging in your goodness. You can't be better. You're perfect in your goodness. You're perfect in all of your attributes, in all of your ways. The psalmist taught us, Lord, that even in affliction, you are faithful to us. Thank you for your goodness to us. As we open up your word and hear more, Lord, from your your mouth, We have this opportunity, Lord, to be, as it were, face-to-face, breath-to-breath, hear your own word, not our ideas, but what you know to be true. Make us humble. Make us eager to learn from your word, and make us eager to love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you open your Bibles, please? In the book of Psalms. one thirty eight. Psalm one thirty eight. The subtitle says of David. That's part of your Bible. That's not the editor. That's actually part of Hebrew scripture indicating that David wrote the eight verses that follow. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Do you know what you just read? It's prayer, it's praise, and it's doctrine. David started speaking to God in the middle of all kinds of trouble because David was a man who woke up every morning knowing that people would dance for joy if he were dead. David was a king in an ancient world, surrounded by enemies and occasionally haunted as well by intrigue inside his own kingdom. He woke up with the pressure every day of knowing that he led a nation in a world where war was not Uh, fenced in by any kind of humanity or any kind of agreements beyond what perhaps the combatants could establish before or after the battle, but more likely in David's world war meant genocide. That's why it's important to know that David wrote this psalm and to hear David pour his heart out to God and tell God who David knows him to be. If you look in verse 2, I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. And I love the last request. Did you see the last line in the psalm? Do not forsake the work of your hands. In other words, God, this is all that I know about you. This is how I am relating to you. And here is a request for you before I go. Let me ask you in view of the love and the faithfulness that I've just been singing about, that I've just been reminding myself of, that I've just been praising you for, hold on to us. We are the work of your hands. I am your king. I lead your people. Please don't walk away from us. That is living doctrine. That is living theology. The reason we're on this short series to introduce you to the biblical idea of studying biblical teaching, doctrinally arranged, is to deepen your love for God, deepen your love for other people, to make you more like his son, Jesus, who gave his life for you. The point of all this and the end of the sermon today will be a reminder that none of this is meant to puff you up or make you proud. If learning about God is making you proud, you're doing it wrong. You're either not learning about God at all, or the actual legitimate things you have learned about God have not done you any good. Because, David tells us himself, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, the haughty he knows from Afar, what does that mean? God is standoffish with the proud. Proud people have no room for God, they have only room for themselves, so God keeps his distance, David poetically says. We're studying doctrine, which is just the truth of Scripture arranged by topic. That's all it is, rather than learning Scripture. Consecutively, by going through a book of the Bible, we're taking a few weeks to pull ideas from the Bible and see them across Scripture. And to introduce you to the topic, last week I started exploding a few myths that people have about doctrinal study. The second one today, if, you'll, if you have your notes, and this is a series where notes are going to be extremely helpful to you, you'll let give me a moment while i retreat to the protection of this shade somebody gave me a talking to last week and told me that i was going to destroy myself if i kept standing in the sunlight so <laughs> if you're here in this big giant auditorium or if you're online notice that i'm trying to be teachable and i'm under shade i'm in the shade right you can see that i'm in the shade The glare off the table is brutal, folks, but these are the sacrifices I make for you. Admire the courage, admire the love, admire the humility. Have you ever been proud of your humility? You ever walked away from a situation thinking how humble you were and how fortunate they were to have you in their lives? I might be battling with that just now. Here's a myth. This is actually a denominational motto for one particular group of Christians. They say, no creed but Christ. Boy, that sounds good. We don't study the creeds. We have Christ. That sounds so good. People, it's become very, very popular in internet culture in the 21st century to advance ideas through memes and slogans and little catchy pieces of art with four or five words that try to simplify very complex topics into just a little soundbite, but people have always operated that way. If you read church history, some of the worst lies ever told about Jesus were told in Rhyme. They were told in an early version of a tweet or a bumper sticker. And this is one, and it sounds so good. No creed, in other words, no document, no statement of faith, no books to read, no outside sources, no creed but Christ. The trouble with that is, that statement itself is a creed, because I can't find that anywhere in Scripture, You're making, in other words, a doctrinal statement. You're making a theological statement. And if someone says, I don't believe Christians should study theology, that in itself is a belief about theology. Does that make sense? It's self-refuting, in other words. It defeats itself. Even as you say it, you deny the truthfulness of what you're saying. It would be very much like me telling you right now I don't speak a word of English. Do I? Are you confused? Do you hear me speaking in English? I must be speaking English. No creed but Christ is one of those simple self-defeating statements, like a man who once shouted at a Christian preacher, there are no absolutes. And the preacher paused and asked him, do you believe that absolutely? See how that works? The truth is this, everyone has doctrinal beliefs. Your doctrinal belief may be that you don't believe in doctrinal beliefs, but that would be your doctrinal belief regarding doctrinal beliefs. (laughs) The real issue is, where do they come from and are they true? Here's something that became very, very popular in children's books and in a movie that came from a children's book called The Polar Express. Anybody ever see that? The conductor of the Polar Express said this, one thing about trains, it doesn't matter where they're going, what matters is deciding to get on. How romantic. Embrace the adventure. Where is this train going? It doesn't matter. Just get on the train. I say this with no humor because it's criminal. The trains headed to Auschwitz Did their destination matter? Made all the difference in the world. Destinations do matter. But very, very simple things that are woven inside our culture, every movie you watch, almost every commercial you see, every sitcom... Every miniseries produced by Netflix, it all has ideas, it all has teaching, it's not explicit and it's not preachy. They never sit you down and say, we're now going to shape your view about yourself. We're going to shape your view about sexuality. We're going to shape your view about God. We're going to shape your view about the worth of other human beings. But if you start theologizing, if you start listening and watching for ideas in all the media that surrounds you, you're going to find teaching woven through all of it. The question is, who says that? Where is that idea coming? from, and most importantly, is that idea true? The truth is that God has given us his word to tell us what he wants us to know. We have scripture, which is our topic next week, but listen to Paul in his last letter remind Timothy of the importance of scripture. If you have it in your notes, in fact, I'd love you to read this with me if you can. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Altogether, now, the last two verses. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, For correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good word. In the word scripture, Paul is referring to the sacred writings, which we today call the Bible, and he says that those scriptures, in other words, those things placed in writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit stand in a very special place in the human library because they are breathed out by God. The Greek word underneath this little English phrase breathed out by God is a very special and unique word. It's very picturesque. It indicates that when you open Scripture, it's as if you were face-to-face with God and He were speaking directly to you. Scripture has the very breath and the very Word of God in it, and because it is God speaking, that is profitable for you. It's profitable to teach you, It's profitable to reprove you, in other words, to show you where you're wrong. It's profitable to correct you, to put what is wrong back in place. And it is profitable to train you in righteousness, in other words, in a positive way to build you up so that you will be complete and equipped for every kind of good work. Doctrinal beliefs, if they are to be true beliefs, if the doctrinal beliefs that are circulating through the world are going to represent God and be true to what God himself knows is true, they must come from his word. Listen to Paul pull the Corinthian church aside and give them a little talking to about how easily they were swayed away from trusting Jesus. He said, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, and there Paul is already referring to Scripture. He's talking about the first chapters of Genesis. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Here comes the talking to. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted you put up, you put up with it readily enough doesn't that sound like a disappointed father he's heartbroken for them Paul's letters to the Corinthians, there's two. The first and second Corinthian letter have been placed inside Scripture. They are God's word to us. We're reading somebody else's mail. But if I could paraphrase, Paul says, I'm, cons- I'm very concerned about you that you're going to be deceived as your mother Eve was, that the people you're listening to are going to lead you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ Jesus... Because other people are coming to you with a different Jesus, with a different spirit, and with a different gospel, and you sure are doing a great job of putting up with it. I understand his frustration and his heartbreak because when you've been a pastor for about 30 years, as I have, no, I'm not quite that old. I just started very young, (laughs) although I'm not that young. It is shocking and heartbreaking how easily some people who have apparently walked with Jesus for years hear something else, watch a YouTube video, read a tract from a cult, have a conversation with someone who has a few classes of philosophy under their belt, and in a day, it seems, are suddenly headed in an entirely different path. That's as old as Scripture that deception is as old as humanity itself. What Paul is warning here is that all kinds of people are teaching about Jesus. There's all kinds of different gospels being preached in the world. All kinds of spirits are being presented to people as true. Where do we find the truth? All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Our standard absolutely is not a creed. Our standard is scripture. What is the value of creeds? What is the value of sermons? What is the value of small group discussions? What's the value of the little book we're using as a tool to learn? If those things represent and teach the Bible well, they're useful. Because everybody has beliefs, the question is do their beliefs conform with the words that God graciously breathed out and put in writing? I want you to take that phrase home with you so that tomorrow you will approach your Bible, hopefully, with fresh wonder, with fresh gratitude, and humility. Paul says, the writings, that's what scripture means. The sacred writings called scripture, they're in writing. They can be read on a piece of paper. They can be read in a human voice translated into us from English. But those writings are more than words on a page. You're doing more than going to the central library and picking up a random book. When you're reading scripture, you are reading words that were first breathed out by God. It's not referring to human inspiration. It's not referring to the kind of writing I've done, whether I gather the best ideas I can find from others, the best ideas I can find in Scripture and put them down in my own words. No, the authors of Scripture were being used by God to deliver his very word, his very breath. Make sense? That's why this book matters. That's why you should seek it daily. That's why you shouldn't miss a chance than a day that God gives you to sit quietly with your father and listen to his breathed outward. The next myth we've already referred to. I don't need anybody to teach me because God will guide me. I recently encountered a very, 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 very forceful presentation of that idea in the fount of all human knowledge, which is Facebook. Facebook. a very angry man who knew a little bit of the Bible spent from the timestamps on his posts spent the better part of three days telling other strangers on Facebook I didn't engage because I don't need to go down those rabbit holes I just read he spent the better part of three days telling people that they didn't need a teacher and we're back to self-contradiction because he was teaching them that they needed no teacher that they should listen to him tell them that they didn't need anybody to tell them anything. Does that make sense? Now, where does that idea come from? Because it's wildly popular, and the reason that idea is popular is because it comes from a misunderstanding of a verse in the Bible. 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. Paul wrote, I'm sorry, John wrote, listen to your teachers carefully, they could be wrong, John wrote, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Can you see the phrase that people grab to say that they need no teacher? It's right in the Bible. You see it? Read the phrase to me from the Bible that says that no one needs to teach you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. So what are we doing here exactly? Are we disobeying scripture? Am I disobeying scripture and are you wasting your time? It's right in the Bible. You have no need that anyone should teach you. So what's this all about? Let me introduce you to a term that I just want you to keep in your mind for the rest of your Christian life as you evaluate ideas presented by other Christians or people who claim to be Christians or other religious groups who claim not to be Christians, but to know the truth to correct Christians. That phrase is proof texting. Proof texting refers to the practice of taking a little piece of scripture and offering it on its own as proof of the idea that is being presented. Does that make sense so far? If you pull a few words out of this paragraph, John just said to his readers, nobody needs to teach you anything. And this angry teacher on Facebook went on to say, you have the anointing. The anointing that you have received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him. The anointing is almost certainly according to a verse earlier, a reference to the Holy Spirit. Paul is, uh, there I go again, I'm telling you, listen to the teachers, they may be wrong. John is saying to his readers regarding people who are denying Jesus, You already have life in Jesus. God gave you his Holy Spirit. He anoints you. In other words, he sets you aside. He empowers you and equips you. He gives you new life and new understanding. And because that is true, you have no need that anyone should teach you. What does John mean? I can read his words, you have no need that anyone should teach you, but if I read the whole paragraph, which I won't take time to do, and I read much more of the Bible, which I will take time to do, I immediately discover that John can't possibly mean that no human being can teach another human being the things of God because John is doing it himself. Did you notice? What does he mean? He says to them, regarding the people who are deceit, trying to deceive you, you already have the new life that the Spirit gives you. You don't need, I'm reading his meaning, not his literal words, you don't need that kind of teaching. You don't need to hear anything from those kinds of people because you already have the truth, you already know the truth, you already know that it's not a lie, just as the Lord once began to teach you, you stick with him. I believe that is what John means. How can I know that? I can know that by not proof texting, but by looking across the Bible, The truth is this, Christ himself gave teachers to the church, beginning with the apostles and continuing to this day with pastors, and not only pastors, but with other mature believers. John himself wrote this entire letter to teach them. John evidently thought that at least he was qualified to teach them some things. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. By the way, if you wanted a clear statement that Jesus is God, there it is. I don't know if you caught it. Let me read it to you again. We know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. End of letter. Does it sound to you like John has a point of view? Does it sound to you like he knows Jesus? Does it sound to you like he knows that there are counterfeits and idols? In other words, other ideas and other people that may be tempt, maybe temptations in people's minds to replace him john himself is teaching and the idea of one person who knows god sharing what they know with others is all across the bible listen to paul talk to timothy again in second timothy chapter two you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to do what teach others, teach others also if you look back in second timothy chapter <laughs> speaking of memes we might have just made one And I remember a conversation I had yesterday where I said to someone, It might be a little windy. Do you think we'll be okay? And I was given ample assurances that it would be okay. Instead, I'm out here like Mary Poppins, uh, very nearly. <laughs> so much for the shade. That was spectacular. We didn't see that one coming. Folks, thank you for indulging outside church. We continue to think it's worth it, but sometimes there's added attractions and added excitement. The point I'm trying to make is this, all across scripture, the breathed out words of God are entrusted by people who have their lives changed by knowing God, develop a personal relationship with him, and then by God's design, people who know God tell other people about God. It is very obvious, it is very scriptural that Christians should teach other Christians and that Christians should teach what they know about God to people who don't even know Jesus yet because Jesus, before leaving this earth, left us something called the Great Commission. And he said, go and make, what? Disciples. Disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then what did he say? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Beware, as you start your doctrinal studies, beware the bad habit, beware the pitfall of proof texting, of lifting a phrase from Scripture. I recently lost relationships with people I love very dearly who took six words from the English Bible and from it built an entire doctrine that denies Jesus. What led to that was the simple idea of proof texting, of not looking at everything that God has said, not looking at everything that his harmonious word actually teaches, but of taking A sliver so small that it can be twisted and taken out of context and used to build all kinds of idols and all kinds of lies. Look in Colossians chapter 3. Here's where you come in. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, what's it say? One One another. It's not just pastors. It's not just apostles. It's not just faithful men who were qualified and gifted to teach other people. The Christian church is a teaching and admonishing and coaching community, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Yesterday, and one of the most moving things I've ever been part of in my entire life We honored the life of Adorea Luster, who taught generations here at Liberty Christian, whose Facebook I perused yesterday and saw a medical doctor thanking her for teaching him the basics of numbers and colors and reading when he was her kindergarten student 30 years earlier. Adore's life, Adore's love, and Adore's family literally spanned continents. It made family through blood and through love of people who look nothing like one another and who have nothing in common except Jesus and their love for each other. And to prepare for that service, I looked at the text messages and the emails that Adore sent me over the last 16 years. She never opened the Bible to me to teach me a Bible lesson as I'm trying to share with you, but she taught me a great deal. The things she said about Christ, the way she expressed herself to me about what God was doing in her life, the way she sought to encourage me literally on her deathbed to say some words of loving encouragement to keep me moving forward in the last days of her life, they've taught me more than many seminary classes that I took. That is the beauty of a congregation that lets the word of Christ dwell in each one of us richly so that the word of Christ, the breath of God living in each one of us, results in us teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Yes, teaching is part of God's biblical idea. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 15. If you needed more proof, here's a final paragraph. It says, he gave the apostles, it's referring to Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're learning and growing so that we will be mature, look in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, don't miss this, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Do you see the word picture that Paul's painting? He says, the world that you're in is like a storm-tossed sea. There are winds of doctrine blowing in every direction. All kinds of people have all kinds of opinions about God, of his son, Jesus Christ, of of the place of the Bible, of the value of life and the meaning of life. You can find very articulate voices in contemporary America that tell you that you are a Super intelligent ape, powered by electrical impulses and chemical reactions. There are some very bright philosophers that say that there is actually no free will, that you've never made a choice in your life that you can't, that you're simply the result of all of these processes unknown to you driving you forward. You think you came to church this morning because you wanted to. The truth is, according to them, you had no choice in the matter. Everything in the universe has conspired to put you in the seat right now or to put you in front of a screen. You have no free will. That's one idea. That's one very far side of the spectrum. There are many, many other ideas all the way to Jesus being the Son of God. Paul is warning this Ephesian church, that if they are not careful and they do not teach each other and they do not listen to scriptural teaching, they will be tossed around and they will be perpetually immature. Here's what we should be doing instead, verse 15. Read with me if you have your notes, read with me Ephesians 4:15 through the end of the paragraph. Paul said this is what we should be doing instead. How does that happen? That happens through the gifts that Jesus gave his church, which include shepherds and teachers, which includes every member as the word of Christ dwells in them richly, supplying encouragement, supplying life, giving support to other believers. Does that make sense so far? That was not encouraging. I thought we were a congregation, you momentarily resembled an oil painting of people sitting under a tent, wondering what might blow away next. You can legitimately tell people that church blew you away this morning, okay, sorry, horrible pun toward the end of a sermon, absolutely terrible. Here's the fourth and final myth and I'm done. Some people say that studying doctrine will make them proud and unloving. And this one exists because some knowledgeable Christians are proud. I'll say it more plainly. Some people who seem to know a great deal about Scripture and a great deal about God act like jerks. It starts in seminary, and some never outgrow it. Some people are averse to doctrine because of the way they see people who seem to know a lot of it behaving. And they reasonably make this objection. If knowing much about the Bible is going to make me like that, maybe I shouldn't learn that much about the Bible. Just give me John 3.16. I've had many people tell me that very thing. All I need to know is John 3.16. Knowing about something is not knowing God. You may have noticed that a word that keeps cropping up in all of these scriptures is love. Paul said to the Ephesians that all this teaching, all this effort, all this work to stay stable, to grow mature, to be a mature man, to be a mature woman, to grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ results, verse 15, results in speaking the truth in love. In love. You may have noticed that Paul warned the Corinthians earlier that he was concerned that they were being deceived and led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You can know a great deal about God and not know God himself. I can give you theology textbooks and teach you all the terminology, but Every effort, regardless of how the pastor preaches, whether it's expository the way I normally do it on Sundays, or whether it has a more doctrinal focus as it does for these few weeks, if it doesn't result in you actually knowing the God who is there and the God who made you and love you, if you only know things about him, but you don't know God himself, it will leave you unchanged. The point and the value of all of this is to know the God who loves you and to grow into the likeness of his son who saved you. So if all your knowledge, all your sermon listening, all my sermon making, all the book writing, if that does not result in someone who not only knows things, but actually knows and behaves more like Jesus, something has gone desperately awry. Something is missing because at the heart of this is a personal relationship. Jesus was asked a doctrinal question. You may remember. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember his answer? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there is a second that is like it. You are to love your neighbor, what did he say? As yourself. All this knowledge, including the theological accuracy to be able to answer across the vast volume of Scripture what is the thing that God commanded that matters most, it all boils down to genuine love of God. Listen to Paul correct the Corinthians again, and I'm through. They've been fighting about food sacrifice to idols in Corinth because in the ancient world, what generally happened in pagan cities was to drive demons out of food. That was their pagan superstitious belief. A small part of what was going to be sold in the market was taken from the meat pile, taken from the meat, offered in sacrifice at the altar of an idol and that would cleanse the whole so now everybody can eat safely. It was ancient superstitious pagan hygiene. And The church in Corinth had a doctrinal debate. Should we eat that stuff? These people take the meat that's sold to us in the market and they dedicate it to idols. Surely people who know the true God, surely people who love Jesus, shouldn't have anything to do with that, right? And you can read Paul's answer in his first letter. But listen to the way he starts his answer. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, you'll notice the translation I'm using puts quotes around the phrase, all of us possess knowledge. The translators believe that Paul is quoting them. All of you claim to know something. All of you claim to be very knowledgeable when you come to discuss this. Both sides think you're right. Listen to his correction. This knowledge... In other words, what you claim you know, this kind of knowledge that you claim to have, what does knowledge do? It puffs up. But love, what? Builds up. Now read it in context. Does God have knowledge? Yes, he has all the knowledge. Is God puffed up? Is God unapproachable and haughty? No, he's holy. But we just read in Psalms that he is near to people who are humble. So there's no problem with knowledge. It is the kind of knowledge that left to itself that is not followed and built with love. That kind of knowledge puffs people up, but love builds them up. Look in verse 2. This is why we're on this journey. If anyone imagines that he knows something... He does not yet know it as he ought to know. Did you get that? That's for me. Just said I was a pastor for 30 years. Who cares? What matters is to know God. There are people who have been pastors far longer than I have. Didn't know God. It was all knowledge. It never reached their heart. It never led to a simple childlike faith. It never led to a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. That kind of knowledge not only puffs up, it destroys people. But look, verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is what? Known by God. What does that mean? It means that if all of this effort, all of your reading, all of your studying, all of your praying, all of your serving, if that leads you to love God, God in heaven looks down and says, that's my boy. That's my girl right there. She knows me because she loves me. So if anything and everything we're doing, because this series will soon be over, but there will be others, we will continue in the Gospel of Luke. Later this year, we will study the prophets. We're going to do all kinds of things. If it only leads to knowledge and it does not result in becoming like Christ and growing in the grace and the love of Jesus, it's just vanity. It's just words. It's just learning that may teach terms and may engage the mind but does nothing for the person my sincere heart for you is that you will open your bible and use these simple tools that we're providing to you and go to your groups and have conversations with one another so that you may grow in the genuine knowledge of god love god because of what you learn of him and in all of this be known and loved by god yourself let's pray together shall we Let's dedicate ourselves to the Lord to that purpose. All of this is meaningless if you don't love God. So let me just ask you, in all your years of church, in all your years of learning or reading, in the weeks that you've been coming, are you certain that you have Jesus in your life? Are you certain you have been loved and saved by Christ? If not, please turn to Him and be saved. Give up on your idols. Give up on your ideas. Give yourself over to a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. He'll save you. He'll love you. He'll guide you. He'll change you. If that's your need, call out to him. If you're watching online and you've taken that step of loving, trust, and faith toward Jesus, please let us know by sending us a text or send me an email. If you're here in the tent, fill out a card and let me know, please. Give it a- give it that card away at the baskets at the exit and christians let's not focus on the kind of knowledge that will puff us up we'll be useless we'll be in worse shape than when we started let's grow instead into the fullness of jesus love god with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves jesus i pray that that would be true Thank you, Lord, for the patient love of a congregation that works so hard to continue to make our congregational gatherings work. Cold and rain and wind and everything, Lord, that comes from your hand, we're here for it. We're here for you and we're here for each other because we love you. Make this series, make these coming weeks grow in us a genuine love for you that will spill out in love for others so that we will tell them who you are, what you've done for us, how Jesus has saved us, and how Jesus can certainly save them. Father, help us love you, so that you may know us, look down from heaven, and recognize us and name us as your own children. I pray in Jesus' name, and Crosspoint said, amen. Amen. Folks, love you. Thanks for being with us. Whether you're online or in person, watching music blow around, watching me nearly leave with the umbrella, sure, you're going to go home, and you're going to have lunch, and you're going to have a grand old day. We have a whole other service to do. It's supposed to get windier. You might want to talk to God about that, that I don't end up that way, okay? God bless you. See you soon.